Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. What happened this year, and what do we have to look forward to next year? My name is Andrew Evans, and I'm your host for today's podcast. Joining us today is the ever-optimistic Douglas Holtz-Aiken. AAF's president and our fearless leader. Doug, thanks for coming on. Uh, I am delighted to. Thanks. Many view 2019 from a policy perspective quite negatively. The U.S. deficit grew. Our trade relations got worse. Congress did relatively little in terms of substantive legislating. Now, you focus on economic and fiscal issues. So I'd love to start off uh, just by getting your perspective on what happened in 2019. From your perspective, what were sort of the big things that happened this past year? Well, I guess I'd agree with you. I think most of the focus has been on China trade. And uh, since we've seen the two largest economies on the globe engage in a, in a damaging trade war, damaged China, damaged the United States, damaged uh, the global uh, economy, uh, that's a pretty negative thing. And we don't really have much to show for it. Like, no one can point to a result that says in the future it'll be better. Uh, and I understand the pessimism that comes with that, but it's not done yet, and, and we'll see what happens in 2020. Uh, it's also true that we saw a trillion-dollar deficits arrive, and that they are forecast to continue as far as the eye can see. Uh, that's bad news, too. But again, the reason we have those deficits has to do with the nature of our social safety nets, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, those things. And, and we're about to engage in a big conversation about what those should look like, and so there, there's chance in that front. But I would also point out that there are some things that went on in 2019 that were not uh, entirely negative. Uh, the thing that I've considered to be the Trump administration's most remarkable accomplishment has been its reining in of the regulatory state. Uh, AAF's Regulation Rodeo documents the, the costs imposed in the private sector of every final rule that's put out by this administration and previous administrations, and it's like night and day. The Obama administration finalized a costly rule, something that costs more than $100 million, at an average rate of 1.1 per day every day for eight years. It's just stunning. $890 billion of costs imposed on the private sector. Uh, the Trump administration has simply stopped that. And they've stopped it in a way that makes a lot of sense. They haven't gone out to the agencies and said, well, you can't have that rule. You got to get rid of this rule. No, they just told the agencies, you're not allowed to impose costs on the private sector. You have a budget, your budget zero. In some cases, they're negative numbers. We want you to reduce the burden. And then they let the agencies figure it out. And uh, Dan Bosch has written great summaries of this. But, but regardless of the particulars of the numbers, we've seen that, that growth in the regulatory state essentially stop and shrink in some cases. It's an enormous improvement in the economic climate and uh, something that I, I don't think has been properly appreciated. The other thing that happened this year, and, and this is a, a more – uh, I think, controversial um, uh, piece of policymaking is the Trump administration finished its vision of the individual market in the ACA. Um, I, I don't think it's fair to say that the Obama administration liked the ACA and the Trump administration didn't want the ACA. I think it's that they had very different visions about the kinds of products that you could buy on the individual market and the kinds of um, premiums that you would pay for them. And they have, through a series of rules, allowed short-term duration plans. They've allowed uh, a whole series of uh, association health plan initiatives to offer different kinds of products. And they finished that kind of work uh, this year. And that, that re represents uh, maybe not a unanimously agreed upon progress, but certainly uh, fulfillment of their policy agenda. They are getting things done. Uh, I want to come back to the the sort of economic impacts of regulation, but uh, could you sort of like 
sort of break down for us what what sort of is the the animating principle behind what the Trump administration is trying to do in the individual market for the Affordable Care Act? I, I think the animating principle is let's allow competition in policies. Don't don't regulate what they have to look at look like. Don't regulate one size fits all. Let different insurers bring to market. Uh, plans that have different levels of coverage, that, that have different durations, that will, be, as a result, be very different costs. So premiums can be quite low for a short-term policy with, with a big deductible. Now, that isn't for everybody, but it isn't for nobody. And the Obama principle was nobody should have that insurance. They, they got rid of it. Uh, it seemed like a, for a lot of the year, a lot of the, the discussion was around a recession. It seemed like we were on recession watch for a lot of the year. Uh, but it here at the end of the year, the economy seems to be maybe not booming, but doing very well. We had stunning job numbers this this past, I guess, this past week, a couple of weeks ago. Um, how much do, do does the regulation policy is? Can we attribute the sort of economic strength, vitality, continuing strength to the regulate regulatory policy? Are there other things? Is it not policy related? Uh, I think that there's important impacts of policy. So if you roll the clock back to say 2016 in the second quarter. Uh, GDP growth year, measured year over year was about 1.3%. And we saw it increase every uh, quarter thereafter, uh, reaching a peak of 3.2% in the second quarter of 2018, 3.1% in the third quarter. Since then, it's dropped off. And, and I think that's in large part attributable to the, the fallout of the trade war. But the things that built that, that momentum in the economy were uh, the tax bill that was passed in 2017, but especially the regulations, because that started right away and that coincides with a, a, a big jump in small business confidence. You look in every survey done by the National Federation of Independent Businesses, and they talk about the regulatory climate being much more favorable. Uh, that's a, a piece of strength that's been underneath the economy throughout previous years and this year as well. And that's part of the reason we didn't see a recession. As an aside, I've always thought the recession talk was, was wildly overblown. Um, 70% of the economy is the household sector. We've got unemployment at, at 50-year lows. We've got wage growth that's 50% higher than it was a couple of years back. Um, people are finding jobs. They're getting paid in those jobs. Uh, they're going to continue to spend. It's, it's hard for me to imagine a recession without the household sector going south, and there's no reason for it to. And you think that if we didn't have a trade war, then sort of the indicators for the economy would be even stronger? I do. Um, Again, if you look at business fixed investments, so that's uh, buying and building uh, new commercial structures, uh, putting equipment in place, buying new software, all of those activities of businesses, which sort of to replace aging stuff or to expand, uh, that was, again, back in 2016, uh, at exactly zero growth year over year. And it, it ramped up right along with the, the economy. It was the driving source of that, that acceleration. And it stopped in the second half of 2018 and, and was weak again in 2019. Why did investment tail off? Well, I think most of the surveys point to the trade war. Like, I'm not sure where I'm going to do my investment because I don't know where my supply chain is going to be. I'm not sure I want to get into uh, to increasing uh, the size of my business right now because I'm not sure about the outlook. Uh, all That has really chilled, I think, the, the climate for, for doing big expansions. Stepping back again, was there anything that did not happen this past year that you expected would happen? Uh, I thought there were a couple of absolute locks in terms of legislative activity. Uh, there seemed to be a bipartisan agreement that we would have to do some sort of federal privacy legislation. Like what will be the rules of the road in, in conducting online business and online social media? Um, everyone's unhappy with the status quo. Uh, mechanically, 
it makes sense for the federal government to set one set of rules instead of having state by state do this on their own, and they're beginning to do it on their own. I thought the combination of those two things would, would get something over the finish line. Count me wrong. It's not done, and, and most people are going to think we're going to be back at this next year. The other thing that I thought everyone agreed on was that the status quo was unacceptable on drug prices and that something needed to get done. The administration has put out a bunch of initiatives administratively, rulemakings, but they really can't do everything in that way. You need legislation. The Senate did, in fact, take up legislation. It came out of the Senate Finance Committee. The House has several pieces of legislation, uh, one of which is the, the Speaker's Bill, H.R. 3, but, but none of those look like they're going to get over the finish line and, and signed by the president. So, again, I think we'll be back at this again next year. So we're, we're sort of looking at, at 2019 as a whole. But overall, even beyond 2019, the, the Trump administration era, the Trump era, we could say, seems very different from previous Washington eras, you could say, certainly in terms of administrations, but also in terms of, of Congress. Are there any lessons we can draw from this past year uh, from the Trump administration, perhaps in particular? I think there are there are lessons for um, policy. So, for example, if you think about um, pro growth policy, I've always thought it's it's not a bill. It's not like the the Obama stimulus bill. It, it's a philosophy, and and the philosophy says that at every juncture where you have to make a decision, you choose in favor of growth. And I think the Trump administration is a great example of this because. Uh, by and large, at every juncture, they have chosen in favor of growth until they got to China and trade, at which point they have chosen against growth on a regular basis and we got less growth. I think it's, it's a, just a fantastic uh, example of that lesson in life. So it's worth looking at. The other thing that w- I think we've learned from the Trump administration is that there, there really is a way to get things done in Congress uh, on a bipartisan basis, and it begins in the White House. The White House has to be the place that reaches out to the other side and says, what do you need in this bill in order to, to sign on, and especially reaches out to its own side and says, well, I understand this is a bad vote, but we will, in fact, help you in other ways, campaign for you, whatever it may be. That's the traditional route for getting things done on a bipartisan basis. My view of the world is that uh, George W. Bush did not do that particularly well, especially after uh, he focused on the war on terror. Uh, the Obama administration had legendarily poor relations with Congress. And I, once again, we've seen the Trump administration not do that. Um, they didn't do it in repeal and replace. They didn't do it uh, in the tax bill. Those got – one didn't get over the finish line. One got over the finish line just on Republican votes and they haven't done it since. And so there's not much legislation. This is perhaps a good segue for, for looking forward into 2020. The American Action Forum focuses on economic and domestic policy. So what do you uh, foresee being the biggest issue areas over the next year? I think we will see the issues that animate the campaign. And so um, what are things that that differ between the likely Democratic uh, nominee and the likely Republican nominee? Well, uh, climate policy. So I think there will be a lot of discussion of the economics of climate policies and and what are better and worse ways to address – uh, the U.S. output of greenhouse gases, and, and importantly, how do you get the rest of the world to, to get on board with uh, meaningful reductions in greenhouse gas emissions? That's a, that's a huge issue. I, I think that's going to come up a lot. The second sort of highly interrelated bundle of issues really revolves around deficits, debt, and the social safety net. It's, it's no uh, arithmetic uh, surprise that our problems stem from 
the growing spending on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Affordable Care Act, federal retirement and health programs, and we will not get them under control until those programs are restructured in a way to make them financially sustainable. Um, I, I, I don't think that's what we're hearing right now. So what I expect to have happen in the cam- course of the campaign is for there to be more discussion of the kinds of expansions you've heard from many of the, the Democratic primary um, candidates, you know, Medicare for alls or Medicare buy-ins or uh, paid family leave, free college, uh, all sorts of things that would add dollars to the federal budget. Um, one way to sort of deal with the, the social safety net is to ask the question, well, do we want to expand it when we can't already afford it? And I think that issue is going to come up again and again, and there's going to have to be some sort of reconciling of the desire of people to have a social safety net with their capacity to fund it. So I want to I want to sort of dig into a couple of these in turn that you mentioned um, with climate policy. I know AAF has been involved with this debate. Uh, we put out that that estimate of the Green New Deal uh, some time ago. What do you see as the key drivers of the debate? There are really two separate issues that that are obviously closely related. The first one is, do you want to do something or not? And the second is, if so, what do you do? To date, AAF has really simply said, okay. Suppose you're going to go do something on climate, whether it's a clean power plan as proposed by the Obama administration or a Green New Deal as uh, proposed by the House resolution. Um, what does that look like? And uh, what will it cost us both budgetarily in terms of economic growth and, and uh, diversion of other resources from the economy? Uh, and we've done very good work in identifying how costly some of these approaches can be. Uh, the alternatives, of course, are, are cheaper approaches and, and some of them are out there, carbon taxes and other things that use the price mechanism to, in a, a relatively um, a hands-off way, let the private sector solve the problem of the emissions at least cost and, and, and push uh, things that way. Obviously, if you can get it to be cheaper, then you're more likely to want to do something, right? This, is, this comes down to sort of benefits and costs and you get the cost down to zero, you'll do anything and, and we won't get it there, but we can get it substantially lower. I also personally think that this is something that people have missed about the international debate, which is traditionally nothing gets done without U.S. leadership. I mean, it, we are in fact too important in the world to to sort of sit on the sidelines of this debate. So if there's going to be something that happens globally, the U.S. is going to have to lead that. I don't see the, the, the U.S. public supporting any effort unless they can afford it, even if everyone else doesn't join. So you have to have something that's pretty – cheap and, and pretty tightly put together in order to get this to move forward. Democrats will obviously be putting together proposals, plans for this. Do you foresee that pushing Republicans to embrace some sort of climate plan of their own? It seems like they've been reluctant to on the whole. Uh, to date, there hasn't been anything that looks like a, quote, Republican climate plan, not since, um, you know, back in the, the early 2000s, um, John McCain and some others had uh, votes on uh, a cap and trade in the Senate. He proposed one on his campaign. Um, there's been nothing like that since. Uh, right now, you can see a clear emphasis on, by Republicans on uh, acknowledging the scale of the problem and uh, stressing that innovation is central to, to addressing it. I think that's right. Um, and you know, the question is then will they, they, they land on a unified position of what will generate the most innovation and generate the ability to, to come to grips with this? It seems like Democrats will be pushing the climate change issue perhaps. Uh, Republicans on the flip side will be pushing the deficit debt issue, perhaps. Um, Democrats will be proposing plans and then Republicans could be the ones pointing out like maybe that'll cost too much. 
I guess we see that dy- dynamic a little bit in the Democratic primary right now. Is that is that the dynamic that you anticipate with Republicans always asking, like, how much does this cost? Perhaps. I think this is we're in the era of perhaps. Uh, there are a lot of things that traditionally would have happened that, that, that don't, don't go on right now. I think there's been remarkably little discussion of the budget and remarkably little concern over the deficits. And perhaps that will change. Uh, I think it's important personally that it that it does change. And I think the beginning of that is a frank discussion that highlights to the American public that we have a problem. To date, that hasn't happened. I mean, for eight years, the Obama administration sent the message that there's nothing wrong with the federal budget that you can't fix by taxing rich people. And so far, the Trump administration has sent the message there's nothing wrong. That leaves, I think, the vast majority of Americans in in the dark about the both the scale and the, the, the durability of our problem. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a big problem and it gets worse and it goes on forever. It needs to be dealt with now. That, we haven't had that discussion. So no one can deal with it if you haven't first identified the problem. So I would think that an enormous accomplishment in 2020 would be simply to put this very high on the public radar screen so that a serious debate can, can start to occur about how to address it. It's surprising to me that we didn't have more discussion this past year given that we – we're over a trillion dollars for a deficit for a while. We came in just under at the end of the fiscal year. There was a spate of news stories. Then it seems to have sort of died off. What will what will it take to put that on the radar screen? Will, will it take a crisis? I, I don't know is the honest answer. I mean, it, it might. Um, let's go back to climate just to, as an example. Um, you know, I've, I've been around the discussion of climate change since the late 90s when I first published a paper on um, growth and CO2 emissions. Um did a lot of work on it at, at uh, the Congressional Budget Office in the early 2000s. Um, but, you know, by and large, the average American wasn't deeply concerned about climate change and it was an issue for the elites. And anytime something came up about doing something, Americans would basically say, yeah, I recycle. We're good. Um, and, and, you know, that's just that, – that isn't the, the nature of the problem. Now we have a lot of weather events, weather and fire. And I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not an expert in this. Um, they may not be related to the, the basic uh, global trends, but they have gotten the public's attention. And as a result, you hear a lot more discussion of this. Um, I think the same has to happen on, on the deficit front. Um, there has to be something that gets the public's attention and says, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't do that. And it might be financial market instability. It might be the inability to get things through Congress that um, make sense. So if you're um, a person, a young voter who raised in this in this era, you might think paid family leave makes sense, but there's no money for it. So why is that? Well, it's because there's no money even for the existing stuff. You're never going to get new stuff. And, and that may trigger the debate. It, but something's going to have to happen to get it going. You mentioned in passing healthcare as a potential issue, at least in, in the context of a, of a budget. Uh, what do you see as the dynamics in a healthcare debate this next year? Uh, how do you see that debate going? Um, there, there remains this enormous similarity and difference in the in the in the approaches of the the extremes right we have we have two visions of single payer out there on the left the vision of single payer is literally the federal government being a single payer for all medical services so you, you draw a line somewhere and say this is a medical service this is not wherever that line is drawn if you show up to a provider you get that service the federal government pays the bill and that produces lots of bills and you got to raise a lot of taxes to pay those bills and and, and uh, there's a Something goes from there. On the right, there's actually a comparable vision, which is the single payer is the American consumer. It's this should look like the rest of the economy where the only person you care about paying is families. So let's give them 
uh, policies that, that allow for them to be price conscious, give them the information, price transparency, to make decisions, and let them drive this thing. Um, they're interesting because they're, they're both very um, idealistic and ideologically driven visions. The health system we actually have doesn't look anything like that. It's an incredibly complicated thing that has for-profit, not-for-profit, private government, differences across the, the states because the population's problems differ across the states and states have their own initiatives because they care about them. I, I, I think both of those kinds of things are doomed to fail if you don't just accept the fact that we have a very, very complicated and diverse system for a reason. Over 200 years, it's evolved that way. And so um, it's been a lesson, at least to me, over my career. I'm now a raging incrementalist because you just can't do all those big changes that way. Do you think drug policy could be an area where they do make sort of an incremental yeah. change this next year? Yeah, I do. I, I think um, we don't we don't have a problem with the price of every drug, but we have some notable problems like, uh, like sole source uh, off patent drugs that get jacked up in price. Uh, that that's been one thing that's gone on. The sort of epipens and of the world, those kinds of phenomena. Um, then we have sole source, um, highly specialized drugs, oncology drugs at the moment, um, and, and increasingly uh, specialty drugs developed for very small populations. You know, infants born with with uh, muscle disorders, and and they can be cured, but they cost a million dollars a dose. Um, th those problems we need to, to come to grips with uh, because they are, they're real and we, they don't fit into the insurance model that we've used so far. And, and that becomes the issue. I'm struck that one issue that you did not mention in your list of things that could be prominent this next year is trade. Yeah. My staff didn't prep me well. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you anticipate trade being, being a big, sure, big issue? Sure. It'll continue to, to go on. Uh, you know, the, the administration has launched into a strategy with China that says we are going to apply ever-increasing tariffs until we get a deal. And we don't have a deal. And the deal that they originally envisioned was a very sweeping deal that would change intellectual property protections, the capacity of U.S. firms to enter the Chinese market without taking on Chinese partners, um, uh, all sorts of adherence to uh, the norms of international trade, and, and actually – in the beginning, getting China to embed these in Chinese law, which is a, an enormously big ask. Um, I've always been skeptical they can get all that, but that doesn't mean they won't try to get what they can, and I expect that to continue. You mentioned how the presidential campaign will drive a lot of these issues as candidates put out put out proposals. It's easy to, for me to forget, at least, that, that there's also going to be a congressional election this next year. Um, how, how do you anticipate sort of the, the broad sweep of the elections and perhaps particularly the congressional elections coming up as impacting the, the state of the debate and the, the ability of Congress to, to do anything? Well, the, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, in presidential years, the, the elections get nationalized so that the debates occurring at the presidential level dominate the agenda. And I, I think that will remain true to a great extent. It is the American tradition that the winner of the presidential election gets one, right? So whatever their primary initiative was, they get the back, come back and in the first 100 days pass something on that front. Um, I don't know what that will be. I certainly am not – it's not clear what the president, should he be reelected, will, will lead with in terms of his most important thing. Um, but you can already see that those Democrats who were elected in a sort of swing districts that Trump won in, in 2016 are going to try to find ways to separate themselves from the national debate and say, look, I have done a good job for you. I'm your elected representative. 
And I think there will be a fair amount of uh, attempts to do that on both sides where candidates in, in, in especially the, the sort of swing districts are going to try to say, look, this isn't all or nothing. We're not just doing with the Democrat or with the Republican. I'm here. I'm different than both of them and, and I'm willing to work with both sides. And we'll see a lot of that. Thanks. That's really helpful. Last question for you. How will the American Action Forum be involved in these debates over the next year? Uh, the debates will dictate to some extent. Uh, AAF uh, is built on the notion that the public should be able to understand what's at stake in a policy debate while the debate takes place. Not a year or two years later when the white papers finally get buttoned up, but while they're happening, why should I care? How big an issue is this? What are the options? How should I think about them? And so whatever turns out to be the major source of debate, whether we're right about it in this conversation or not, we will do our very best to research it in a way that is uh, rich with facts, um, full of the, the notion of options for things. There's usually not one way and only one way. And get that to the public as fast as possible so that they can make up their minds on what they'd like to see happen. Very good. Well, thanks so much for, for helping us to figure out and what we can expect next year. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. Don't forget to subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. I think it's an absurd calculator. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, everybody will have to go check out and see see what it means for you. Although I guess Chris just told you how the calculation works. Yeah, one of it one just of saved our, just saved us all some time. Yeah, one of our team members uh, put in a million dollars, and it turns out Medicare for all is gonna gonna give him a million dollars. So. <laughs> Very good. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. Don't forget to subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF.